Imagine if Jesus wrote a letter directly to our church right here in Mississauga. I want you to imagine that. that Jesus wrote a letter directly to our church here in Mississauga. And I want you to keep imagining that as we walk our way through this letter. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia Minor. And this revelation came directly from God. It's God's word. came directly from God through Jesus Christ to John so that John could share with fellow servants of Christ who were suffering like he was, who were being persecuted like he was, so he could share with them what was going to be happening, what was going to be coming, this victory coming, what was going to happen in the end to give them the strength they needed. And so those seven churches are seven actual churches, like much in Revelation is symbolic, but these seven churches were actually seven churches in the province of Asia. They're addressed kind of in a clock, well, I guess it'd be like this for you guys, clockwise order geographically. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that's the order they're given. It's just a geographical order, seven churches in Asia. It's addressed to them. And right at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus directly addresses each one of those seven churches with a very brief, very short letter. And if you, have the, you know, if you have the Bible with the red letter, you know, where Jesus talks, you have the Bibles with the red letter version, this is red letter stuff. Look in your Bible when you get home, or if you have it here, look, these aren't red letter ones, but this is Jesus talking here, okay? You'll see they're all red letters because this is Jesus directly telling John. John is taking dictation at this point. These are Jesus' words. So, that being true then, um, these seven letters give us a very good idea of what Jesus himself thinks is important for churches. And that's why I think it's very important for our church to take a close look at these seven letters. There's a lot that we can learn. And today we're going to start by looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus in his third missionary journey. And Ephesus was a very important city in the ancient world, a a port city, a a huge, sprawling metropolis back then. But Ephesus was a very pagan city, very uh, worldly city, with with a lot of false uh, religions and gods uh, in Ephesus. Very pagan city, very anti-God. Ephesus was home to the temple, uh, to the goddess Artemis. And this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was actually larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And the worship of this goddess absolutely had taken over the city. The the, the people of Ephesus were just consumed with their worship of this goddess. And and in order to worship Artemis, the the worshipers would would come to the temple and perform adulterous acts with temple prostitutes. It was a very pagan and dark city. But it was this pagan and dark city that the Apostle Paul fell in love with, so to speak, or or at least had a love for. He spent more time than any other place there. He spent three years there teaching and preaching about Christ and performing miracles. And you know what happened? People began turning to Christ. People began um, repenting of their sinful ways and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. 
And these people were leaving the worship of the goddess Artemis. They were leaving Artemis. They were no longer buying her silver statues. And this made the silversmiths in Ephesus furious. And so if you read on in Acts, there were riots there. And there was a lot of persecution toward Paul because of this. But, but, these new Christians were so in love with Christ that we read this in Acts 19. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. The value of the scrolls came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So the church in Ephesus grew. In fact, Paul's letter that he later wrote to them is in our New Testament. It's called Ephesians. And they continued to grow in their faith. They continued to grow in the way they practiced their faith right in the midst of this pagan, worldly city. And now, at this time, the time of the writing of Revelation, the, the church in Ephesus was now about 50 years old. And Jesus now writes to them, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write dot, dot, dot. The word angel means messenger. Now, if you have the NIV, it'll say right in the bottom of the page in the notes. Also means messenger. All right, so to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write. So Jesus was addressing the messengers of these seven churches. Or you might say the leaders of these churches, or the teachers, or the, we might say today, the pastors of these churches. The ones who were acting as the messengers in those churches. That's who Jesus was addressing. When Jesus appears to John in that chapter that we just read, do you remember? He's holding, he's holding seven stars in his right hand, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands. But just as we're starting to think, what in the world is that talking about? What is going on with that? Jesus actually reveals very plainly, he tells John the mystery of this. It's the last verse of chapter uh, 1. He says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, the one that you have on your map there, those seven that you have on your map. Okay? They are, the lampstands are seven churches. What are they doing? They're showing Christ's light to the world. Okay, I want to point something out to you now in this first verse. Um, as soon as he addressed them, he said, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is holding the seven stars or seven angels or seven messengers or seven leaders of those churches in his right hand and he's walking among the seven churches. I can't tell you how much comfort it gives me to know that Jesus is holding me in the palm of his hand. Not just any hand, his right hand. The one with the strength and power. Jesus' right hand is the strength he exerts to assure his people of salvation and, and to protect them from evil. What in the world do I possibly have to be afraid of if I know that Jesus is holding me in his right hand? And listen, he's walking among those churches. 
He's walking in the midst of those churches. This is the fulfillment of the promise Jesus made in Matthew 18, where he said, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with you. There am I in the midst of you. Jesus isn't up there or over there or out there. Jesus is right here. He's right here with us when we gather in his name. Jesus is walking among us. What in the world would we ever have to be afraid of? What in the world would we ever have that could possibly distract us? Jesus is right here with us. Don't pass over that as you read through that verse to remember what that's telling us. He's holding us in his powerful right hand. He's walking among us. He's with us always. As he said in Matthew 28 when he sent his disciples out to make disciples, I am with you always. Okay? Then he starts by commending the Ephesian church. Here's what you're doing well. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then a little later on, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the Lord commends them for their hard work, their perseverance, their enduring hardships, and their having no tolerance for false teachings or evil practices. But first of all, again, notice something. Jesus says, as he begins all that, he says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Remember back in chapter 1 where John is describing Jesus and he describes him uh, having eyes of blazing fire. I mean, those are eyes that can look right into your heart, right through you. Those are eyes that can see your heart and know your mind. And he knows exactly what you're doing. Now, sometimes that might be pretty scary. But here, it's comforting. Here it's comforting. You know those things that you do because you love Jesus? Those things that you do because you love Jesus, even if no one else knows about them. Even if no one gives you any credit. Even if no one shows you any appreciation. Jesus knows your deeds. He knows your deeds. And really, that is all that matters. Okay, so he commends them. Now, if the letter stopped there and we didn't have the rest of the letter, I mean, Ephesus, Ephesus would really sound like, like an amazing church to be at, right? I mean, this would sound like a church that's getting it done. A church that, that no matter what the outside pressure from the culture around them, they have remain steadfast. And they have not grown weary of giving glory to God's name. I mean, this is a church that has had to go through one challenge after another, one hardship after another to plant a church in this very wicked and worldly and pagan city. But they have endured. Can we relate? And just as predicted, false teachers have come with their false messages, and they have tried to lead them astray. And they have, they've tried to take them off the path. But 
the Ephesians have tested those teachings against the Scriptures and found them false. They have recognized evil and not tolerated it. They've recognized those evil practices and had nothing to do with them. You know, and no one is sure, the, the Nicolaitans, it doesn't matter where you read or what, where you try to, no one knows exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but we know this. Their practices were wicked. God hated their wicked practices. And the church in Ephesus hated their practices. Now, usually we think that word is a bad word. But listen, hating false teachings and wicked practices is very much in line with and very much consistent with loving Jesus. We don't hate people. We love people. We hate sin. We hate false teachings. We hate wicked practices, but we love people. And that is very much in line with loving Jesus. That's part of loving Jesus. And that is exactly what Ephesus was doing. Ephesus was doing all of this well. They had all these good points to be commended for. They seemed like this great church getting it done. But yet, they were missing the whole point. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? When you think about your life, when you think about our church, they're doing all these great things, but, but they're missing the whole point. So Jesus was saying, all this stuff you're doing great, but I hold this against you. And these are chilling words, really. You have forsaken your first love. So this one with eyes of blazing fire, this one who can see into hearts, knew that something was missing. The one who can see hearts, read minds, knew that something was missing. Think about the little boy who loves playing football, playing with his dad, playing with his friends, his brothers. His choice, that's all he'd ever do. He loves throwing the ball and seeing it spiral into the air. He loves catching the ball and running with it and pretending that he's scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl. He loves tackling his brother. He's got his favorite team. He follows them. He cheers them on. He loves football. And he loves it so much, he becomes good at it, good enough that one day when he grows up, he gets into the pros. And, and it's exciting because it's a dream come true. But now, now it's hard work and, and prep around the clock. Now his every last move is evaluated and scrutinized and criticized. Now it gets into politics and salary disputes and player strikes and million-dollar holdouts. And this goes on for some time, and several years later, he realizes that now he's really only playing out of a sense of duty and obligation to his contract. But he realizes he's no longer playing for the love of the game. He's lost his first love. Or think of the little girl who loves to draw. The little girl who loves to paint. She loves art. If she had her way, she'd, spend, she'd do nothing else but, but create beautiful, beautiful pictures and beautiful things. And she's good at it. She's been given a gift and she has an eye for color. And she spends all her time drawing and painting and creating. And she gets good at it. And this becomes now her career. And she gets hired on. She, she gets into a career as a graphic designer. And, and she does so well 
that, that her art is sought after and she's in demand and her once uh, normal schedule becomes busy and then becomes crazy and until the point where she realizes one day that more or less I'm just a machine producing, producing, producing but I don't enjoy what I'm doing. I'm now only doing this out of a sense of duty and obligation. She's lost her love for art. She no longer has that first love she once had. Or you could tell the story about a couple. The excitement they had as they fell in love. All they did is, is think about each other. All they wanted to do is, is be with each other. And they would, without even being told, do anything for the other person. They would be, they would be uh, figuring out beforehand what they should be doing and doing it because they wanted to. They'd spend any amount of money. Uh, they'd make any amount of sacrifice for the other because they were in love. And love led to marriage. And they had a wonderful marriage. But as it went along, and year passed into the next year and so on and so forth, several years later, they, they eventually discovered that um, that now, really, they were only doing things for each other out of duty and obligation. Not because they wanted to, not because they, were, they, they, they loved to, not because they were excited about it, but more out of a sense of duty and obligation. Not because they were filled with this desire to love the other. This is what happened at the church in Ephesus. They lost, this church lost their first love. Sure, they were doing some good things that churches should be doing. They had much to be commended for, but the one who could see into their hearts could see that they were no longer doing it for the right reason. That they were no longer doing it out of love for Christ. They, they no longer did it with the, with the joyful and excited thankfulness because of the love that Christ had showed them. And now their, their love for each other was, was waning because their love for their Savior was growing cold. And now the, the deeds they were doing, all this stuff that they were doing, Christ pointed out to them that really all those deeds stemmed more out of a sense of duty and obligation. But their hearts weren't in it. The love was gone. Could Jesus write this to our church? And I have to say, yeah, he could. Because I've seen this here, too. You come to Cross of Life, and, and you get excited about Jesus. You get excited about the gospel message. You meet people and you feel loved. And, and you enjoy that fellowship. You get excited. You start taking the Bible instruction course. You're growing in your faith. You're growing in your excitement. You become members. You get involved. And you start serving. You start giving hours of your time and you don't even care. You're happy to do it. You're doing it out of love. Serving in all kinds of ways. But then at some point, the pattern changes somewhere along the way. I don't know, life gets busy, something happens, something changes. And, and 
and all of a sudden you're, you're no longer in a Bible study anymore, so you're not growing. Things start falling apart at home. Things start falling apart at work because you're not growing anymore. And then life spirals in all kinds of bad directions, but out of a sense of obligation, you keep doing that task that you signed up to do at church. You keep doing it because you are, you know, that's who you are, but you're doing it now only out of a sense of duty. There's nothing wrong with the things you're doing. It's wonderful that you're doing those things. But the love isn't there anymore. The motivation isn't there. You're not being filled anymore with the love of Christ that gives you the desire and the motivation to want to do those things. And I'll confess the same in my life. I mean, there are definitely there are times where I have to stop and admit, you know what? The things that I'm doing, I'm not, I'm not doing them out of the love that Jesus has filled my heart with. But, but you know, I, I'm, it's more like I'm doing grudgingly out of a sense of duty and obligation. When Christian love decays, churches die. When Christian love decays, churches die. Um, when we look at that pattern, if, if, if the pattern continues, if the pattern of losing our love continues, and there's no repentance, there's no change of heart, there's no change of mind, um, the light will go out. A Christian church, like it says in Revelation, is like a lampstand. A lampstand that's lighting the way to heaven by proclaiming the gospel and when a congregation of believers despises the gospel, God will eventually come and remove the lampstand from them. So, Jesus has two words for us. First one is remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen, he says there. And uh, now, now is when you go back in your Bible and you open up to Ephesus, to, sorry, to Ephesians, the, the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus. And Paul will tell you exactly what the height is. The height, that height that they had fallen from, Paul wrote about in his letter to them, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He said, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So the height that they had fallen from is the love of Christ. That love that they had forsaken. So friends, remember. This is Jesus' first words to you and me in this letter. Remember the height of the gracious love that God has had for you and me. He gave everything. He gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven. Let's remember that love that God has had for us. Remember that. And then the second word is repent. Repent means to have a complete change of mind. It means to take your heart away from one thing and turn it to another. And the church in Ephesus needed to repent. And then it says, and to do the things you did at first. So remember the love that Christ showed you and then go back to being excited about that. 
Go back to the way it was when you were burning your very expensive but wicked books because you loved Jesus so much. Go back to the way it was when you were doing that. Go back to the way it was when you were growing in Christ, when it was new, when you were growing in his word and, and rejoicing in his forgiveness and serving him out of love. Go back to that. And cross of life, we need to repent too. Let's confess to God that we have forsaken our first love at times too. Let's repent of that sin to God. Okay, and then let's go back to the way it was. Let's go back to doing the things we did at first. Let's go back to being excited about the love that Christ has filled our lives with, the, the, the more joy than guilt, the, the, the love, these, the grace he's given us, the forgiveness, the whole new life he's given us. Let's go back to the way it was when we were excited about that, when we carried around different ways that we could that reach out to others with him. When, when we thought, all we thought about was how we could bring more people to come to church to hear about that. When, when, when we carried around the attitude of, we can, we can, with God's help, we can make that happen, instead of, well, that ain't going to work. When, when we have this new and excited love for Christ that did and served and, and followed him and did things for him simply because of the love that he's shown us, let's go back to that. He can give us the power to do that. Friends, remember your first love. Have you ever met anyone um, who's just utterly and desperately in love with Jesus? I'm sure you've met people. Um, I'd have to say one of the, one of the people in my, lives, in, in my life, um, it'd be hard to think of someone who was more in love with Jesus and just more excited to see Jesus than my grandpa Schultz. Uh, now he was a pastor for 60 years. You could not engage him in conversation without him relating scripture to you and usually in a direct quote. And his highlight of the day were, were, were the hours that he just spent reading the Bible. And he had one on his recliner and one on his desk, and both of them were so ragged that, that they literally, if you picked them up off of any of those services, they would fall apart. But, it, but his, no day was complete for him without spending time in the Word and relating it to you. And the last five years of his life, I've never met anyone more excited just to leave this world and go to heaven. He wanted to be with Jesus so badly. Now, Grandpa Schultz acted toward God the way that you and I act toward people that we are madly in love with. When you are truly in love with someone, you will go to great lengths to be with that person. You'll drive for hours to spend time together, even if it's only a short period of time. You, you won't mind staying up into the wee late hours of the night to talk to that person. And, and walking out into the rain is, is uh, romantic instead of annoying. You'll, you'll, um, you'll spend a small fortune on the one you're crazy about. Maybe that's why they call it being crazy about someone. Um, and when you're apart from them, it, it's painful. Maybe even, we might say, miserable. But he or she is all you think about. And you will jump at any chance to be together. Friends, you have a God who feels exactly that way about you. You have a God who wants to be together with you that much. And it meant so much to him. It meant so much to him that he made 
the most amazing sacrifices imaginable to bring the tree of life that once gave us that privilege back and put it in his home, his heaven. And he made everything through Jesus Christ and what he did for us, he made everything possible so that you and I could spend eternity with him. That's how much God wants us to be with him. That's how much God loves us. So what this letter is saying to us is this. Let yourself fall in love with him all over again. Friends, remember your first love. Amen. Now God gave you ears. And the Holy Spirit has inspired words of correction and comfort. And Jesus did everything necessary to make us right with God. So as Jesus once said, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.